From the studios of the Optimism Institute, welcome to the Blue Sky Podcast. I'm your host, Bill Burke, and in every Blue Sky episode, we'll be speaking to leaders, researchers, and thinkers whose stories and insights will remind us that there is always blue sky above. Sometimes you just have to get your head above the clouds to see it. My guests today are Tane Hunter and Dr. Angus Hervey, co-founders of Future Crunch. Future Crunch is a group of scientists, artists, technologists, and entrepreneurs who think there are new and better ways of doing things in the 21st century. Their mission is to foster intelligent, optimistic thinking about the future and to empower people to contribute to it. Tane Hunter is a cancer researcher, bioinformatician, and science communicator. He has a master's in bioinformatics from the University of Melbourne and has worked for the Melbourne Royal Children's Hospital diagnosing rare genetic diseases. He's currently completing his PhD at the Peter McCallum Cancer Center using molecular biomarkers and DNA and analyzing them with artificial intelligence to improve treatments for people suffering from cancer. He's also a former United States mountain biking champion and an avid sailor. Dr. Angus Hervey, who goes by Gus, is a political economist and a journalist specializing in the impact of disruptive technologies on society. Before co-founding Future Crunch, he was the founding community manager of Random Hacks of Kindness, a global initiative from Google, IBM, Microsoft, NASA, and the World Bank to create open source technology solutions to social challenges. He was also the first editorial manager for Global Policy, one of the world's leading international policy journals. He holds the PhD in international political economy from the London School of Economics, where he was the Ralph Miliband Scholar. It's my great honor to welcome Tane Hunter and Gus Hervey to the Blue Sky Podcast. Tane and Gus, welcome to the Blue Sky Podcast. Thanks for having us. Appreciate you being here today. You are on about as far from me as you could possibly be. You are calling in from Melbourne, Australia, while I am in the far northeast corner of the United States. Through the miracle of technology, I can both see and hear you in real time. And I really appreciate you taking the time. Thanks, Bill. It's great to be on the podcast. Yeah, let's rock and roll. Yeah, let's rock and roll. So the first thing that strikes one uh, reading about you two is your backgrounds. Um, They're both very interesting. Uh, They're also very different from each other. And they wouldn't necessarily logically lead you to the work that you're doing now. So if I have it right, Gus, uh, you're a political economist by training and background. And Tane, in addition to being a national champion mountain biker, which I found fascinating, you are also a cancer researcher. So first, how did you meet? And second, how did you land on the work that you're doing at Future Crunch? Well, it all started on a bike ride, obviously, <laughs> given my background. But what do you think, Gus? How was the bike ride? What did we chat about? Tane and I uh, were friends and we uh, set off on a, a three-day bike ride with uh, both of our partners and um, ended up falling into this conversation about the world and how it worked and, and how things fit together and you know what was going on. And um, as you do over the course of three days, you can really nut a few things out. And what we discovered was a kind of um, this overlap, um, a, a shared uh, optimism, I guess, about the future, or certainly a shared hope that the future could be a better place. But we 
came at it from such different angles. Um, you know, he had a completely different language and a completely different perspective on the world to mine. And I, I found that fascinating. I'm not quite sure he found my, <laughs> and found my ideas fascinating. But uh, from that point onwards, we kind of had this, uh, the spark of this idea. Yeah, as a political economist, boring. <laughs> yeah. Had the spark of this idea to sort of say, look, there's something here. This is a great conversation. You know, I wonder whether we can continue this. Uh, in a way that we can share it with with a wider audience. And, and that was really the genesis of Future Crunch. Yeah, I mean, Gus comes from political economy perspective, and he was really concerned about, you know, decarbonization and renewable energy. And he was a bit down and out about the prospects because in Australia they ripped out the carbon tax and a few things like that. But uh, my dad luckily took me in 2006 to the first Singularity Summit. Um, and that created a technophile persona in me. And I just fell in love with the idea that technology can create solutions and that politics is not the way to go. And uh, I, I truly believe that in every political committee, there should be at least a few PhDs in there that should talk about how things can be better and the advancements of society. Um, so it was basically talking about problems over solutions over problems. And solutions come from technology and human advancement, diversity of range of technology and diversity of perspectives. And that's seriously important hopefully for the betterment of the human race, also hopefully to all things on the planet. And so how many years ago was that bike ride? 2013, I think. Or 2013. So we've been going at this for almost a decade, which which is astonishing to me. But the other interesting thing about doing this for a decade is that, that we've seen some things come and go, um, and we've seen some trends come and go. And I suppose um, through the accumulation of multiple mistakes that we've made ourselves, um, we, we may have picked up one or two things over the course of that decade. Yeah, and over these decade, this decade, I've learned to love political economy <laughs> and economics and also the ability to understand social matters at a wider scale because I'm a science nerd. I've been in love with science since I can remember. However, science is not everything. It also matters about how we react and engage with the world. And so Gus has taught me a lot. The two of you talk about intelligent optimism. And, you know, I've read The Rational Optimist by Matt Ridley. Ridley. There's a, the phrase stubborn optimism. Tell me about intelligent optimism. What do you mean by that? Well, the best place to start is people t tend to think of optimism as naive. And naive optimism is a kid waiting for Santa to give them presents at Christmas time. That's naive optimism. Like, yay, I'm going to get my just desserts. Intelligent, courageous optimism is the way I think about it is like a, a girl who wants to have a treehouse. And so she gets the nails, the wood, the hammer and then gets her friends diverse by design and then creates that treehouse for herself. So it's it's a process about really you keeping the facts sacred, understanding the problem and going ahead. Because if you don't go ahead with 
the problem that you want to solve, then there are many failures along the way. Having said that, you just have to keep trying and keep great people around you, especially people with different ideas and different expertise. That's the way to go forward. I I think it, with intelligent optimism. This distinction that Tane is talking about there, the naive optimism versus the practical optimism, that's actually an idea that was first posited by Paul Romer, who's the uh, who's a, a fairly well-known economist as well. Um, so as much as we would love to take credit for that, um, but that idea of you know the gifts versus the treehouse, um, he came up with that idea. He called it practical optimism. As you said, Matt Ridley's got rational optimism. Um, I think Steven Pinker, Max Rosa, a few others, they've kind of, they fall under this umbrella of intelligent optimism. Um, there's engaged optimism. There's, uh, you know, there's a number of different labels. Um, I think that they actually all fall under the same kind of thing, which is that uh, it, it's an optimism that's informed by data, um, by cutting edge science. It's an optimism that's informed by successes in the past that maybe give us hope for what can be achieved in the future. Uh, and the most important aspect of it, which Tane has already obviously touched on, is that it's an engaged, um, involved optimism. Um, it, it's not something that sits back. It's something that yeah. gets stuck in. And I guess the point of it, people who are practitioners or proponents or people who espouse this idea or people who call themselves an intelligent optimist, I think the idea is to try and inspire other people to go out and engage and say that we have the solutions and that we can do this. And I think that's probably um, what lies at the core of all of these different labels. Yeah, and why evidence needs to be sacred, you got to keep the facts gold-plated. If you only talk about facts, but if you don't learn to tell a story, then you're not going to engage people. I call it uh, smart, heart, and fart. So you got to have the evidence sacred. You got to have science and technology and the human knowledge as a background, like the bottom of the period pyramid. And then you have to talk to people in a way that's engaging because a lot of people don't necessarily engage with facts or they're useless. I mean, come on, I was the worst person at a dinner party 10 years ago. I was like, 98% of facts are made up on the spot. So if you give percentages and facts like that, no one really cares. But you have to learn to t tell a story, which is engaging not only to the mind, but also to the heart. Like, people have to be engaged. And then you got to have a bit of fart in there. you got to ha have a laugh along the way. Um, otherwise, we're going to all cry. I knew I liked you guys. I, uh, In fact, uh, you mentioned Steven Pinker, and I'll... And I'll drop his name in my, on my behalf. I, I met him. I was at a program at Harvard and he's how I found you. He's a huge fan. Um, and he's funny cause I was talking to him about this optimism Institute that I'm trying to start. And he said, said, you know, I'm not one of those natural optimists, but if there's data, <laughs> I'm optimistic. You know, if you can back it up with facts and, uh, he really, he really helped me think this through. And, and he gave a Ted talk, I think it was 2018. Um, you've probably seen, and it's incredibly compelling and it uses these incredible charts. And at one point he says, I don't know why more people don't understand this. If wish, wish there were some more people out there who would evangelize on this. And so when I met with him, I said, Stephen, that, I'd like to be that guy. So let's, let's talk. And so he, uh, he sent me to you all and everything you've said really uh, rings true. Great. Yeah. And, and the Santa Claus story, I think is great. I, I was, uh, talking to someone the other day about optimism and they said, yeah, I'm a glass half empty person. And I, 
actually, I don't think the glass half full, half empty is really about optimism. To me, that's maybe just positivity or not. To me, back to the the, the treehouse, mm. if you're an optimist, the, the glass is half full and you think, yeah, there's probably a faucet around here. I think I'll get up and <laughs> fill it <laughs> so it's full. You know, it's like, get off the chair. And I think that's really important because a lot of people think optimists are just going to sit there and you know, just assume everything's going to get better. And and the, and the research shows that it's actually people who are very down on the world who get apathetic and don't act. So I think you, you've hit on something that I know I agree with it, and I'm trying to spread the word. And by the way, the glass is always full. It's full with oxygen and nitrogen. Um, it's full with the atmospheric stuff as well. So what are you going to do with what's the other side of the half of the glass? The late George Carlin, the great comedian, said, some people say it's half full, some say half empty. I say the glass is too big. <laughs> <laughs> or too small. So That's there are a few great. ways to tackle that. Your words there, and, and they're beautiful, Bill. I mean, I, I, you know, we're obviously all singing from the same hymn sheet here. But um, I think the other thing that we've probably realized over the course of the last decade in doing this work is that there's this idea that optimism has to be a reaction to the world around you, that you know, either you take the data in and make a decision or you take in the, the doom and destruction and then you make a decision. So it's sort of, it's a function of your environment or it's a function of the information that's coming in. It's a function of what's happening out there. But I think what we've realized is that optimism isn't a reaction to the world around you. It's also a choice by which you can navigate the world around you. Mm. Um, and this comes back to that, that idea of you know, engagement um, and how you actually step through the world. And for us, optimism is always, first and foremost, a choice. And once you make that choice, the world suddenly starts looking a whole lot different. Um, and I think that's been a really powerful through line about Tane and I all the way through this work. Yeah, it's really focusing on solutions rather than the problems. And that changes your world irrevocably. Tane and Gus have already given us a lot to think about. One thing I'd like to emphasize here is the power of interdisciplinary thought. These are two smart people, of course but I think their combined work is that much better, richer, and more impactful because they come from such disparate backgrounds and ways of thinking. They also point out that optimism is a choice. And at the Optimism Institute, we think that's an important notion. While we can't snap our fingers and make everything better, we do have a say in how we respond to what's bad in the world, the ability to have an impact and make things better, and autonomy around our personal mindset where we place our energies, and with what kind of attitude. I'll add here that we also have a choice not only of how much media we consume, but also which kinds. When I started my work on the Optimism Institute, the very act of seeking out like-minded people and organizations like Future Crunch cleaned up my social media feeds immeasurably. Getting back to our conversation, I share with Gus and Tane what that was like. First of all, there were a lot more people out there than I realized. I had to actively go look for it. And then once I started following, forwarding, retweeting, my feed got so much more pleasant. <laughs> and I've been, I've been a critic of social media, and I, and I still think there's a lot of things that, are, that have been unleashed by it that aren't great. But we're not just passive victims. We choose who we follow. We choose what we want our feeds to look like. And I have experienced it. Just as the algorithms can spin us down into doom, they can spin you up into really great stuff. And uh, that's that's why I see you as much as I do. And Tana, you're usually wearing a pink jacket when I've seen you. So I'm 
I was surprised, but I can um, go grab it if you would like it. <laughs> no, you're good. You're good. But um, it's it's really remarkable though when you say it's a choice, and then it's a, then it fulfills on on these algorithms through these algorithms on social media. It's remarkable. Yeah, I like to think of social media as uh, maybe this is a bad metaphor, but like a pet that you can train because what you give it, it gives back to you. And probably even a kid, like the way you, what you give your kid, if you give them trauma, they're going to be traumatized. If you give them hope, they're going to be hopeful. Can you tell me about the range of your work? Because I'm, I'm here, I'm podcasting, I'm going to do social media, basically media content, but you do a lot more than that. Can you give us a sense for the range of the work that you all do at Future Crunch? Basically, we're ex-academics and we're fundamentally researchers and we research the cutting edge of science and technology and explore stories of human progress and progress around the world. Stories that we really think that most people should hear a lot more about it in this day and age. And we're unabashedly biased with that because um, we need to bring balance back to the world because, you know, it's 20 to one, the good, bad news stories to good news stories. And so we want to try and balance it out. It's not that bad stuff's not happening around the world. It's that we don't hear enough about the good news stories. As the great statistician Hans Rosling said, you have to hold two good ideas in your head at once. The world is getting better and the world is not yet good enough. And if we're not, if we're focusing on the world is not good enough, but not thinking about the world is getting better and looking at solutions, uh, looking at problems over solutions, then that's a serious problem. And it puts people in a cave. They, they have apathy, hopelessness, and that often turns to hate, which is um, what we see a large amount of divisiveness in the world around us. Let me speak specifically to the actual, so that, that I, I suppose Tane's talked talk there about the kind of philosophy behind, you know, what we do and why we do it. Um, in terms of the actual work we do, it's split largely probably into speaking and into media. Uh, we have spent many years speaking on many different stages to large audiences all over the world. I think we've spoken on five continents at something like three or 400 events. Um, and that really is an opportunity to tell people stories of progress, uh, tell, get people to understand this idea of bad news bias, uh, a lot of the same themes that I'm sure you're going to be hitting in this podcast. Um, so really we see that as a kind of a, uh, our education piece and outreach. And then um, the other side of the business is a media side of the business where we have a, a large uh, following, mostly via our newsletter. Um, which has about 45,000 subscribers. We've got a few thousand paying subscribers there as well. And, and people follow that newsletter uh, as probably one of the best known sources of good news on the internet. Uh, and that newsletter already is a research piece for us. Every week, we dig up all of the stories, all the great good news stories, the stories of progress for people and the planet and clean energy and all the great science and technology breakthroughs. And we put them in one place. Um, and people are continually <laughs> astonished by the fact that so many, so many good things have happened during the course of that week. Uh, so the way we see it is that there's a thousand media outlets out there telling you all the things that are going wrong. We're one of the very few that tells you what's going right. Um, and overall, those two sides of the business, speaking and media, 
really combine uh, in a way that we hope uh, gets the message out to as wide a group of people as possible. Uh, but of course, that group is never large enough. So it's a real uh, honor to be on this podcast to be able to share that message with the wider audience. And, and thank you. I want to put in a plug here for the Future Crunch newsletter because it really is great. And not only is it packed with interesting, uplifting, fact-filled stories about great things happening in the world, when you subscribe, one-third of that revenue goes to high-impact charities around the world. As the Future Crunch folks describe it, they seek out, quote, small charities, nonprofits, and individuals using science and technology to make a real difference. People working below the radar who have an outsized impact, unquote. And now back to our interview and a pivot to technology, a passion for Gus and Tane and a focus of their work at Future Crunch. I'd love to talk about technology because um, I think that like everything else, people, some people look at technology and get scared to death and some people look at it and see the, the possibilities. I, you are clearly in the, the latter camp. I'm curious to know which of the technologies that are coming on that get you the most excited, you know, artificial intelligence. Uh, we hear about metaverse. Uh, people get scared of robotics, especially those ones that jump and do somersaults and stuff like that. What, what are you most excited about? And I'd love to hear your thoughts on chat GPT because my friends who are educators are freaking out about term papers being written by, you know, a robot. But then I have a son who's in a business school program where they have open book exams and they consider chat GPT open book. And I've heard it compared to when calculators first came out and math teachers said, we cannot have a calculator in the classroom. So it's a, it's a long question, but I'd love to hear your thoughts about the technologies to get you the most excited and that you wish people were a little less afraid of. Well, I mean, think about it like with mathematics, first you had the abacus and then you had the calculator. And now everyone's doing machine learning and AI, and I use that kind of uh, mathematics in machine learning all the time. And understanding statistics and mathematics at a higher level is not a problem. It's actually creating um, huge waves in the way that we treat patients and improve patient outcome. So I would say technology is a double-edged sword. You just have to be careful about how you use it. Um, in terms of education, um, AI is going to change it all. As opposed to writing your own essay, um, you'll have a, basically a tutor, a guiding hand, and you still have to massage it into your own words and your own tone. But having said that, having an assistant is something that we all enjoy. But it does get a bit weird and there are potential problems with laziness. But as long as you're using it and still passionate about what you do, I don't see too much of a problem with it. Um, but yeah, with lazy students um, who just write their entire essay or dissertation with a few words in chat GPT, um, then that's a problem. Every now and again, you get one of these big technology kind of arrivals, uh, the mobile phone, the internet, uh, the web browser, um, you know, social media, when you kind of just see it and you say, oh, that's a big one. Like that, that's, that's one of these big ones. And I think that everyone understands that chat GPT is definitely one of those moments. Um, but I think as with all 
um, you know, technological kind of inflection points in human history, um, people are incredibly uh, adaptable and creative in the way that they employ and start to use these technologies. Uh, for example, uh, I, I think a lot of teachers and educators are already starting to get their heads around it. Um, it's going to change pedagogy around teaching. But I've seen, for example, an NYU professor is saying, uh, all right, here's the question. Get ChatGPT to create an essay based on this question. Now I want you to mark the essay and tell me and analyze the essay and tell me where this essay is correct and where this essay is incorrect. And so that means that the student, that it's flipped and the student has to have a really deep knowledge of that subject, has to really understand the principles, has to really understand critical theory, has to understand how to deconstruct an argument, has to understand where the balance should lie. There's a whole lot of implicit knowledge that's contained within the uh, task of having to analyze an essay written by artificial intelligence. And I think that kind of thinking where you say, okay, what's our next step? How do we change the way we've taught? Which, by the way, has been stuck for about 60 or 70 years in the same kind of, uh, same kind of containers. Uh, I think it's a, a, a fantastic opportunity for educators to really bump up a level and start to, to, to change the way they teach. And I think that's really important because that's going to equip students um, and learners with the skills for this next wave, this next uh, generation of technologies. Uh, and that's really important. Uh, we're not even going to get into the implications for business, creativity, for art, for a whole range of different sectors. But I think a lot of similar thinking applies. Medicine was mentioned. One of the things I find interesting about AI is that as wonderful as human beings are, um, we do come with biases. And I've seen it as a volunteer in, in the medical space um, with diagnosis. Um, AI done well outperforms medical doctors frequently. And often it's it's just sort of a bias that, that doc, well, I've always seen it this way and it was always that disease. And AI cuts through that. I also used to work in the weather business <laughs> and computers we would say back then computers, not necessarily artificial intelligence, would would map out weather patterns often better than human meteorologists only because they eliminate that human bias. And it seems to me that that's a huge opportunity. And also physicians could be spending a lot less time on diagnosis and more time taking care of the patient who's got the problem. So there's a lot of positive to look at there too, I think. Yeah. And it, it teaches people to ask the right questions because the right questions give the right data. It's, uh, it's about like accruing that data. And the best radiologists in the world use AI, not because it's replacing them, but because they know it's a really good way to scan all of the data and give them red flags. And then they get to make the final diagnosis. It's not removing the human, it's augmenting them. How about the metaverse? This one might pass me by, I'm not sure. Uh, what are the pros and cons? And, you know, for, for a lot of people, what is the metaverse? And are you excited about it? No. Everything you need to know comes from the origin of the term itself. You know, it's, it's, it describes a kind of virtual world that people go to um, to escape a dystopian world um, in which corporations rule everything and people are, you know, um, essentially indentured serfs. Uh, comes from the 1992 sci-fi novel Snow Crash from uh, um, Neil Stevenson. Um, and the fact that one of the largest media companies in the world has unironically co-opted that term as the name of their company 
probably tells you everything you need to know about that company. Um, it also tells you a lot of what you need to know about the kind of delusions of grandeur that uh, a lot of people in Silicon Valley have. Our advice is that you can pretty yeah. safely ignore the metaverse. Um, but what you don't want to ignore is the incredible applications of the technology behind it, things like augmented reality, mixed reality. Um, those have really powerful specialist applications in very specialist industries, automotive, for example, uh, manufacturing, really powerful applications, uh, frontline workers, people who work you know, in the fields with their hands on assembly lines. Um, those, I think, are likely to be very powerful. Yeah, digital twins, it's great. Yeah. Digital twins is an amazing thing for frontline workers. Creating a, uh, a simulation of your work environment and to keep safety for things like an oil rig or uh, hopefully a, a solar array, but more likely a gas uh, fired plant. But it's really good to teach people in a safe environment what to do in an emergency situation. Creating a digital twin is an incredible thing. I think, long story short, uh, the, the technology behind it is really powerful and is likely to lead to some really great innovations. Um, but we're not going to be strapping on headsets and stepping into a world designed by Mark Zuckerberg anytime soon. I think it's very safe um, to ignore that. Please, I hope so. Please. I'm please. happy to hear it as well. <laughs> One of the things I think that uh, frustrates people in, in our society today, and we've talked about social media, is um, everyone f goes into their camps. And, you know, you're right, you're left, you're pro this, you're anti that, and something happens in the world and we all run into our camps and um, and we feel like we have to dig into these opinions. And I, I read or heard something you said, one of you used an expression, um, strong opinions lightly held, which I really appreciate. And as I understood it, you're, you're basically saying you can have your opinions, but be open, listen to what other people have to say. It's not, it's not a sign of weakness to change your mind. Could you talk about that? Because I think if the world were able to adopt that mindset, um, we'd all be in a better frame of mind. I guess if we're honest with ourselves, adopting new ideas and especially having our old ideas challenged feels incredibly uncomfortable. It feels personable. And it feels, if you're anything like me, the idea of getting something wrong or being wrong is not something you enjoy. I happen to be exceptionally good at getting things wrong. But the problem is not getting things wrong. It's not realizing it. Because the feeling of being wrong without realizing it feels exactly like being right. And I think adaptable people get around this and people who progress through the world and really shine adopt the idea that they can be wrong. They have this notion that however small the chance might be that they could be wrong, allows them to adopt new ideas more easily and to help change their mind. And effectively, it's kind of like the scientific method, right? You have to be vigilantly aware of your mistakes. It's part of the process. You have to document them. And given a single country piece of evidence, it really insists that you rethink a lot of what you thought you knew. And that's why science is pretty amazing. It, uh, the scientific method allows for correction. It constantly evolves. And 
that's why it changes. Those changes accrue rapidly and they alter our world irrevocably. And that's why it's the foundation of the technology upon which everything is built upon. Like our microphones that we're talking to, the internet, the paint I'm looking at the wall, the air conditioning, because we're in Melbourne, it's hot as hell out here. Um, you know, that's the ability to change and you have to be able to change your mind, like let go of past ideas. So one of our greatest problems is giving up when we pursue a thing, uh, a pursuit, right? And we have to keep on changing, try that one new thing. And that is what success looks like. Another thing that you've espoused is that a key to success for individuals and presumably society going forward is, I think you coined the phrase adaptability quotient. Um, can you de describe what you mean by that and why you think it's important? Well, it's, I guess, strong opinions lightly held. Like we, we've all heard about IQ, your intelligence quotient, you know, your expertise, your qualifications. We all know smart people, but we also know that the smart people are not always the ones that come up with the great transformations and the great breakthroughs. We've heard about EQ ad nauseum in the last couple of years. And the soft skills are so important. It's your ability to communicate, to empathize, really to you know experience what it means to be a human being with the emotional side, the smart and the heart that I was talking about earlier. Um, but it is AQ that determines success over time. Um, your adaptability quotient is, I guess, loosely defined as your ability to unlearn obsolete knowledge, rethink old ways of thinking um, to overcome big challenges and make a continuous and conscious effort to change and rethink in real time. So take applying for a job, for example. It's your qualifications, your expertise, right, that gets you through the door and lands your resume at the top of that pile. Uh, EQ is what allows you to smooth the interviewer, <laughs> laugh at their terrible jokes, you know, but ultimately build long standing relationships with both your coworkers and your clients. But as a cue that really allows you to pivot and change when, let's say, we're talking about AI a lot, um, when AI comes and takes over 30% of your daily tasks, what do you do with that spare capacity? AQ is the muscle that you can flex and get better in the process that allows you to identify skills and talents that the machines and your competitors cannot replace. And that's why AQ is such an important task. And it's hard. Change is hard. I mean, you know, but if you don't like change, then you like irrelevance even less. Well, that NYU professor has a high AQ, one would argue. Well, that's why it's important to expand your knowledge and your breadth of, breadth of stories, because the information that you feed yourself is really what defines you. What comes in comes out. And so that's why it's really important to look at solutions that are often outside of your industry. For example, algorithms that we use in cancer research 
almost every day are originally created by astronomers to sharpen the pictures of the Hubble telescope, right? Because of the messed up lens, right? And so who would have thought the invention of a stargazer would have transformed modern day medicine and cancer research? So it's really important to take the blinders off, look up and look out because innovations that will transform your industry and what you care about are very likely to come from outside of it. And that's what IQ is all about, really being adaptable and maintaining a breath in the your information diet. I think, again, uh, you know, that concept of AQ, you know, it's not, it's not our concept. It's something that's um, been around for, for a few years now. Um, and I think it's starting to get a bit more light now. Uh, you know, and the idea there is that, as Tane said, it's kind of a, a three legs of the stool, this IQ, EQ, AQ sort of setup. And I think it's I think it's something to really speak about in our conversations. I would love to see politicians with high AQ. That would be really fantastic. But of course, in politics, admitting that you're wrong um, <laughs> and changing your mind on something is is seen as something that's um, to be frowned upon and, and to be shunned. Uh, I think that's really sad in political discourse. Um, I would love to see someone who said, "Look, my uh, this is what I used to think, but." I've changed my mind for the following reasons, and now I think this, um, and therefore I'm going to change my policy or change my votes or or change my approach. Um, I wish that that was celebrated a little bit more in our culture, um, and perhaps it will be um, if we give this another decade or so. And in the same way that EQ and that ability to display emotional intelligence has become something that is now a sought-after tray, um, in everyone from CEOs down to you know the lowliest intern, um, I'm hoping that AQ uh, might be something that we see uh, as a desirable quality or a desirable trait in people um, across a broad swathe of society. Well, and the pandemic certainly challenged our AQ. I mean, overnight, going from life as we knew it to a completely different paradigm. Some individuals and companies and organizations thrive. Some went away, some just couldn't adapt. Pretty fascinating to watch. And now coming out the other side, I don't know what it's like in Australia, but um, if you run an organization right now, this debate between in-person, work from home, three days a week, five days a week, on your own, <laughs> and that, I'll tell you, managers have to adapt, uh, employees have to adapt, and where that all shakes out is going to be fascinating. I'm not even wearing pants right now, so it's fine. You know, I didn't want to ask and I you offered uh, and I won't even it's too cold here for me I I do have pants on it's it's snowing outside I'm not in Melbourne but good good to know Tani <laughs> thanks Tani okay sorry about that digression and putting that image in your head for the record I do think he was wearing pants but regardless you can see that these two managed to have fun together and keep things light from here, I wanted to talk to these two about the future of clean energy, a topic they speak and write about a lot. And having just read that Oliver Stone was preparing to release a film that was pro-nuclear, I started by asking of their opinion on the role of nuclear energy in their vision of a greener energy future. Nuclear energy is, um, is one of those, is an old technology. It's a technology that we don't need. Uh, in order to solve the clean energy crisis. Uh, it's expensive, 
I'm not too worried about the dangers of nuclear energy. I think that that's something that tends to get overblown. But I think it's actually the reason nuclear energy is not useful for us is that we just don't need it. There has been multiple modeling done all over the world, something like 50 different studies now from people, everyone from Oxford through to Stanford University that have shown that it's possible to create a 100% um, uh, wind, water and solar um, renewable energy system. Um, that we don't need something like nuclear energy as the base load, as the backup. Uh, and the other thing that we keep on seeing with nuclear is that they keep on saying, okay, well, we're going to maybe have this new generation or this new, you know, small modular reactors, or that we're going to somehow figure out a way to make nuclear energy cheaper and, and more powerful. Um, but these projects keep on getting pushed back another five years, another 10 years, uh, over budget. Uh, almost every single new or every single new nuclear energy project that's been started in the last five years has gone wildly over budget and over date. And the reason for that is that nuclear power plants are big one-off investments. Um, they don't they don't get the advantage of scale that things like wind and solar do. Um, they're not modular, uh, and that's the main reason that you get these huge cost overhangs. So I think nuclear energy is a distraction. Oliver Stone is welcome to come out with his documentary, um, but I also think Oliver Stone, you know, with all due respect to all of our boomer listeners and to my parents, um, Oliver Stone is a boomer and boomers love nuclear technology. Um, the rest of the world uh, has moved on. Uh, so that is what I want to say about nuclear. However, I will add one more thing about nuclear energy, which is that all of our existing nuclear Everything that's already been built and that is operating, we have to keep that stuff running as long as possible. And we should pour money into keeping those power plants running, into maintaining them, into making sure that their power gets onto the grid. Um, and if you want to read anyone on nuclear energy on this, Michael Liebreich, who's the former head of Bloomberg New Energy Finance and a great commentator on this subject, um, has a fantastic article on this where he said, we should forget anything new on nuclear but all of our existing nuclear, let's keep that stuff running as long as we possibly can because it's a low-carbon technology that we already have. So that's nuclear technology. Now, it's interesting you make the safety point, too, because um, I have family in the, in the U.S. Navy. The amount of the Navy in the United States that runs on nuclear is astounding, and a lot of people aren't really aware of it. And think about dangerous situations where nuclear could go wrong. They've been running submarines and now aircraft carriers and others on nuclear for some time now with very little incidents. So it's a really interesting point that don't get rid of what we have, but don't expand. What are the the clean energy technologies that get you the most excited? What what should we be looking for as optimists, you know, around the corner in the next five years that are really going to make a big impact? For me, solar energy is definitely number one. I know it requires mining and resources, but it doesn't have a glass ceiling like wind and other things have. Um, we have the most powerful influence in, in our solar system, the sun. And if we harness that energy, then if we really get better at it and we can power the entire energy's need, the earth and humans' needs completely, and there's no glass ceiling on it. There's a glass ceiling on other things. That just talking about technological exponential curves and stuff like that. I put my money on solar, but Gus will have a different perspective. I'm sure he's the clean energy expert. Uh, look, it's not a different perspective. It's 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 more of a, a bit of a shift in focus. You know, we spent 
the last decade arguing over which technology was going to be cheaper and whether clean energy, you know, whether we could afford to deploy enough clean energy to solve the climate crisis. Um, that argument's done. Um, we know definitively that clean energy is the cheapest form of energy human beings have ever invented. It's getting cheaper all the time, thanks to economies of scale and exponential growth curves and deployment. Where it's really interesting now is, is, is that we've almost kind of won the conversation when it comes to whether it's a good idea to deploy clean energy or not. The big question now is, can we deploy enough and at scale um, in enough time to avert the worst effects of the climate crisis? And it looks like we can, um, that there's been this kind of shift in the climate conversation in the last year or two, where we've suddenly had things like the passage of the IRA in the United States, um, we've seen this extraordinary rollout of uh, clean energy in China. Um, and perhaps most importantly, um, we've seen Vlad Vladimir Putin probably do more single-handedly to uh, accelerate the clean energy transition globally than any human being alive. Uh, because countries around the world have now realized that uh, another country can stop the oil and gas flowing into your country, but they can't stop the wind blowing and the sun shining. So it's not clean energy anymore, it's freedom energy. Um, and that's a big, big shift uh, when it comes to the conversation. So, so I think what's going to be interesting over the next decade is not so much can we deploy enough and enough scale, but it looks like we can do that. The big question now is transmission. Can we change our energy systems to be able to move to a system that doesn't rely on baseload power, but instead shuttles around enough energy over the Play, like a transcontinental grid, for example, like the United States or across Europe um, or across Australia where we're based, um, Asia, of course, massive land territories. Can we take uh, wind that's blowing when the sun doesn't shine or can we take sun that's shining when the wind isn't blowing? Can we move that around? Um, can we build the transformers? Can we create the smart energy systems to be able to move those electrons around? Can we change the regulatory regimes that... Um, stop a lot of that energy from being built? Can we build enough high-voltage transmission lines? Um, are we going to be able to do all of that in time in the next decade? And, and I think that's the really interesting area to look at. And we haven't even spoken yet, by the way, about transportation and industry but and agriculture. Um, but for now, um, we really need to focus on cleaning up the electricity system. And I think that's where things are going to be uh, really interesting over the next decade. Yeah, and especially in the realm of batteries, Gus, one time you told me batteries are like bacon. They just make things better. Do you want to talk about batteries? I don't want to grab it on too long about clean energy. I can, yeah, I tend to, I tend to end up a bit ranty. Well, bacon's bacon's always a good analogy, and it, and it does make things better. What about carbon capture? Some of the some of my friends who who work on climate change obviously talk about reducing our carbon emissions but they fret about how much is already up there, how long it stays, and that if we don't figure out or put some sort of dent in uh, how much carbon's up there and start capturing it more effectively, we're going to be in trouble. Do you have thoughts on that? So they're, they're talking here about this concept of drawdown. It's this idea that we can't get below two degrees Celsius of warming unless we not only change the energy system, but if we actually draw the carbon out of the air. Um, and it is an incredibly challenging engineering problem. Um, the scale at which we need to do it um, is pretty daunting. Um, and we've only so far withdrawn, drawn down a few hundred tons um, using proven technologies. But the good news uh, is that planet Earth has a wonderful drawdown system in the form of uh, forests and vegetation. 
um, which draw down and store carbon far more effectively uh, than human engineering can. Um, and so I think when you're talking about drawdown, talking about storing carbon, talking about doing those things, it's not that we can plant a billion trees to draw down all of the carbon. It's that we have to try, try as hard as we can to not cut down any more forests. Um, and that people's attention and energy would be far better focused on avoiding deforestation than it would be in spinning up a, a plant in Iceland to draw down carbon into the basalt, um, which is going to cost billions of dollars um, if we're going to be looking at those technologies. But if we invested billions of dollars into avoiding deforestation, I think that would be money far better spent. And as an avid sailor, I've sailed some oceans, but oceans are the lung of the earth. Like 70% of oxygen comes from phytoplankton in the sea. And so I really think it's not save the whales, it's save the plankton, save the seaweed. Um, and I think we need to look not just about deforestation, as Gus was mentioning, mentioning, which is incredibly important, but also the small little critters around us, which produce most of the oxygen that we consume. I'm glad you mentioned seaweed, because I, I'm, I'm talking to you from the state of Maine, where there's some really interesting work going on uh, in seaweed production for everything from medicinal purposes to food. It's a huge demand, especially over in Asia. And everything I'm learning about it suggests is a huge well, meaningful carbon capture, or you might describe it better than I, but uh, there's, it's kind of a win-win-win uh, with this seaweed farming. And in a place where the lobster industry is challenged and the fishing industry is challenged, it could be a huge uh, new opportunity for parts of the world like Maine. Yeah, and seaweed grows like bamboo. It's incredibly vivacious in the way it grows, and it's a very sustainable source. And especially when you give it to livestock, it can reduce uh, methane uh, emissions by a huge percent. And there are many companies in Australia trying that right now, including CSIRO, which is our leading science uh, institution here in Australia. I found Gus's answer on nuclear power to be really interesting. While I am not a boomer, just a few years younger than the official cutoff, I am one of those people who have thought that nuclear could play a more sizable role in our energy systems of the future. But I suppose this is one of those strong opinions loosely held, and I appreciated what Gus had to say about not taking current plants out of commission out of safety concerns. And Tane's points about the oceans were also great to hear. It's amazing how many possible solutions are around us and they're not necessarily to be manufactured in a lab or through computer code, but could actually be in the natural world, like ocean organisms and forests. To wrap up our talk today, I asked Tane and Gus if there was anything that we didn't talk about that we should have, something that makes them feel hopeful and optimistic and that more people should be talking about or acting upon. Tane answered first. My main recommendation would be to change your information diet. Choose stuff that feeds you, nourishes you, educates you, um, and really take care of the stories you tell ourselves. If you wanna change the story of the human race in the 21st century, you have to change the stories we tell ourselves. And so I think really take care of what you ingest 
stay away from the mainstream media. Yes, it's good to know what politician scandal is going on, you know, whatever. But does that really change the face of humanity? Uh, I do not think it does because that's like a flash in the pan. So really think about knowledge that nourishes you, your narrative nosh, right? And if you want to read nonfiction, go for it. But if you want to read fiction, I would suggest sci-fi. <laughs> like get a no novel that like both educates you with science, like The Mountain and the Sea is an incredible novel that Gus and I both read. Um, AI is in there, octopuses are there. Um, anyway, just choose the information that you ingest because otherwise you'll be left with uh, your, what comes in comes out. <laughs> and so just be ready for that. So choose what comes in. You know, I think the answer to this question is a story that I shared in, in the most recent edition of the news that are, uh, which, which I, I think, this story really sums up everything that you need to know about the kind of current state of global media and how we tell the right kind of stories. Um, and certainly how we have a really bad habit of telling the wrong stories uh, or sort of emphasizing the things that don't matter. In December 2022, right around the kind of peak Elon Musk, Twitter hysteria, um, uh, I think the World Cup, maybe it was just finishing. So the world's attention was focused on Lionel Messi and the Argentina team. Fantastic. Uh, and Harry and Meghan were just kicking off their, you know, world tour um, to kind of uh, sell their souls uh, to the lowest, to the highest bidder. On the 11th of December, right around that time, uh, a small research hospital in the United Kingdom uh, unveiled a story that I think is on par with the first heart transplant, um, is on par with the invention of the polio vaccine, um, and it got almost no attention from the world's media. And what had happened is that this hospital had uh, performed a technique called base editing, um, and they had used it to cure a 13-year-old girl named Alyssa from a completely incurable form of leukemia. Um, the doctors had tried everything to help her, nothing was working. And so as a measure of last resort, they used this new technology called base editing, which is an offshoot of CRISPR. I'm sure your listeners would have heard of CRISPR, genetic editing technology. They call it CRISPR 2.0. Yeah, so base editing is an offshoot of that where instead of snipping sequences of DNA out, they change a single letter in the genetic code. Um, they literally rearrange the atoms of that genetic code. So you now have full control over the base, you know, the, the code of life. And what they did is they took out, um, they took healthy uh, immune cells um, from a donor, changed some of the code within those immune cells to then go into Alyssa's body, hunt out her immune cells that were faulty and that were killing her. So the new immune cells hunted out the old immune, the faulty immune cells that killed them. And within the space of three or four months, she was in full remission. So it's the first ever application of base editing technology, a technology we only invented in 2016, the first ever application in a human patient. Extraordinary moment in human evolution. The medical establishment lost their minds. People were absolutely astonished. I think the results were presented at, the, uh, at a conference for hematologists, and everyone just was aghast uh, at this incredible technology. 
uh, and it made almost no impression um, with the world's media. And so I think when you're listening to a story like that, you, you have to ask yourself, how is it that one of the biggest stories in the world in the last 12 months was the death of a 96-year-old British woman, which garnered more media attention than any event we've seen in living history. Um, and I mean, it's very sad and with full respect to, you know, the fans of the House of Windsor, um, when you're 96, perhaps you've had a good innings, maybe it doesn't need as much attention as it did. Why is it that that is one of the biggest media events of the year, but the saving of the life of a 13-year-old girl with a technology that could potentially save the lives of millions of human beings in the future, that marks really a step change in the story of human evolution, why is it that that story sinks without a trace? And I think if you find an answer to that question, you'll also find an answer to the question of why it is that we consume bad news um, over good news and why we should try and seek out more stories of progress and more stories of change. That's a brilliant story. We Yeah, we spent the last part of last year obsessing about the grandmother and now it's the grandson on his book tour. Um, I had not heard the story that you just told until I got your newsletter. And so, and my family's been impacted by leukemia. And I have to tell you, it really impacted me to read that. And um, I'll put in another plug for your newsletter. And again, for seeking out these sources and cleaning up your social media feeds, it'll change your life. And uh, as we change our individual lives, we can really impact the world. And so I, I can't thank you too enough. You're a real inspiration. I'm glad that um, you were introduced to me. I'm going to spread the word about future crunch as much as I can. And I hope um, you've already been to five continents when you're back in North America. Uh, please say hi, <laughs> come pay a visit. And I will, I'll do everything I can to spread the word about the great work you're doing because it's really inspiring. Thank you so much for having us. Uh, and you're an inspiration as well. Yeah, thanks, Bill. And uh, congratulations uh, on, on getting this podcast up and running. We're so pleased it exists. And, and it was a real pleasure to be here with you on the podcast today. Appreciate it. Thank you both. I hope you enjoyed this Blue Sky podcast conversation with Future Crunch co-founders Tane Hunter and Gus Hervey. We spoke a few times during this episode about the importance of changing and managing your information diet. I share their belief that this is extremely important. And to that end, I encourage you to check out the great work being done at Future Crunch and to consider signing up for their newsletter. I also hope you'll follow our work at the Optimism Institute on social media and, of course, Look for more episodes of Blue Sky wherever you get your podcasts.